Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 137. That is on page 617. And you can hold that slide right there, bud, for a minute. Page 617 in your Bibles that are in the pews there with you. Uh, first of all, I, I want to welcome all of our visitors. I noticed, uh, I noticed just several faces this morning that I didn't immediately recognize you. Recognize. If I haven't greeted you yet, I will. I'm not going to call you out. We don't do that here. Uh, mostly probably because the pastor's an introvert, and that's just horrible, um, having gone through that myself. But, but what we, I want to give you a, 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 a warmest of welcomes to uh, Grace Presbyterian Church on this Palm Sunday. Uh, and also just say... <laughs> Of all the Sundays you could have picked, this is going to be fun. Uh, the sermon that you're going to hear this morning is a bit different from uh, how I usually preach and how I usually structure because this text is so different from what is usually preached and what we usually hear that it's going to take a bit of foundation work to do. So the first part of this and some parts in the sermon this morning might sound a little Bible lectury. I, I freely confess it's still going to be a sermon. But I, I think I'm going to have to work a little harder to lay some foundation here to help you understand, in a sense, why this is in our Bibles. So just, just some background on, on this series and on why we've chosen to spend some time in the Psalms this year. What, so what, what have we to do with this book in the middle of our Bible, the book of Psalms, sometimes called the Psalter? Well, Colossians 3.16, uh, you can keep your, your, your kind of thumb on... Uh, Psalm 137, but I'm, I'm starting with Colossians 3.16, uh, wherein we hear this from the Apostle Paul, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All right, so that's, that's a really, that's one of the coolest passages in the New Testament. The idea that, first of all, notice it's the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, which means the Psalms are the words of Christ. Make sure you understand that. And what this verse shows us at the very least, I'm not going to preach the whole sermon on Colossians 3.16, but the very least is that the Psalter, the book of Psalms, was an expected, anticipated part of Christian worship. These are not simply human reactions to circumstances or even to God. They are God's very words breathed out to us. And as we've said before, the Psalms cover the whole range of human emotion, not just the happy, clappy praise songs, right? Now, we sang a happy, clappy praise song this morning. It's called Forever. It's even based on the Psalm right before ours, 136. But, oh man, does the tone change when we get to 137. More on that in a moment. So we like psalms. We like to sing them. We like psalm singing and we like psalm knockoffs, you know, songs that sound like psalms and hymns as well and so on. Psalms that sing about um, God's goodness and, and how his covenant love endures forever as we confessed at the start of the service and that we just sang. But there are these things in the Bible called imprecatory psalms. Now that's a big word. Right? So I'm going to say it again. Imprecatory. I want you all to say it back to me. Imprecatory, right? Imprecatory psalms. Psalms that sing about God's judgment on the wicked. Even to the extent of like pay them back for their wrongdoing and sins. Asking God to do that. Some psalms uh, are, uh, some imprecatory psalms are, are mostly given over to this theme of, of divine judgment. But a lot more often, 
You might say imprecatory verses just pop up in different psalms. But most of the, and, and, and that's how this, and so I'm going to give you some examples just before we get started with our main text. Psalm 5, verse 6. Psalm 5, verse 6. Listen, you, speaking to the Lord, you destroy those who speak lies. Yahweh, the Lord, abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Wow. Go over to verse 10 and 11 of the same. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsel. Speaking of evil liars and murderers. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. Get rid of them. They've rebelled against you. But, this is the contrast, then let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt you. And so Then you might start to wonder, well, wait, now I think I know why we don't sing these so much, right? If unbelievers show up, you know, if, if liars and murderers show up, they might realize we're singing about them, okay? Whoa, that would be awkward, but it's in there. Psalm 11, let's jump over there. Psalm 11, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire, sulfur, scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Fire and brimstone, right? We didn't invent that. That came from the Bible. Psalm 12, right next door. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Woo, the tongue that makes great boasts. Psalm 52. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. So calling out liars. But God will break you down forever. Snatch and tear you from your tent. Uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. Right? Take a moment and think about that. Next one, Psalm 79. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that don't know you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. And finally, Psalm 94, verse 2. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay the proud what they deserve. So where I'm starting here is just, that's in your Bible. Let's deal with it. That's what this sermon's about this morning. It's in our Bible. I think, excuse me, <clears throat> I think collectively we should be tired of hiding from it if we do hide from it. So let's not hide from it, okay? Some say, oh, Got, got your solution right here, Brother Brian. Those Psalms were just for those Old Testament people in those Old Testament times. All I have to say is that's always been really unsatisfying to me. Isn't it to you? Good. All right. <laughs> that worked out well. <laughs> Good. I'm going to read you then Psalm 137, what is probably the most controversial imprecatory psalm in the whole thing, in the whole Psalter. So let's go page 617 in your pew Bibles. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, our, our musical instruments. For there our captors required of us songs, our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You're meant to hear mockery there. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us, 
Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Can you do it? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what do we do with this? Some people actually love to use this psalm to mock Christians. Right? They'll go to verse 9. Dash little ones against the rock. I thought you guys were against abortion. <laughs> right? we, tend to, I mean, we, we tend to avoid passages like this. We don't talk about them. We certainly don't sing them, for heaven's sakes. So imprecatory psalms. Let's talk about what they are. Can you put up that one? So it comes from a Latin word, imprecari, which basically means the action of invoking evil or calamity or divine vengeance, divine repayment of sin on someone else or on oneself. That's in there too. So like, I'm the one that deserves the curse, Lord. Punish me. And so that's, that's a curse. Uh, uh, another imprecatory prayer would be um, the man who, who, who beat his breast, right, in the New Testament. Jesus, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? That's, that's an example. But basically calling down a curse, all right? The action of invoking evil or calamity or divine vengeance on another or oneself. And so I want to make you aware, um, as I look for it, here we go. There's a, there's a book, we actually have it in our... Um, book depository down the hall in the fellowship hall called Psalms That Curse, A Brief Primer by Sean McGowan. Uh, This book made me want to preach this sermon, and this sermon leans heavily on insights from this book, just so you know. It's short enough to where I thought, let's just say that a lot of our people here are not going to sit down and read this. Could I preach it in such a way as to give you a halfway decent summary, Lord willing, of it? And so, in part, that's what this sermon attempts to do. Um, so what do we do with these psalms? They include lamentation, by the way, imprecatory psalms do. Lamentation, crying out to God in misery, saying, Lord, help, how long, O Lord, and so on. But again, uh, a feature of these is that they often call on the Lord to bring judgment on an enemy. And perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, the Christian church, especially, say, the more modern Christian church, has struggled with these psalms and what to do with them. Even C.S. Lewis really struggled with these, okay? In the end, his conclusion is, I don't think we can really use them. And I don't say it often, but I disagree with C.S. Lewis. Uh, But he really struggled with it. He said, how can we say stuff like this when we're called to love our enemies? We're going to get there. Because we believe all Scripture, go to that next verse, please. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that we may be complete. What, what I want you to infer from that is that if there's a chunk of the Bible that we're quietly ignoring, we will not be complete. We will not be ready for every good work. Okay? So, let's begin with probably a question that's already popped into your head, and I'm just going to kind of jump on it straight away. Does stuff like this, okay, Pastor Brian, I get that it's in the Psalms. Does stuff like this ever show up in the New Testament? Yes, glad you asked. Acts chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. uh, When Peter's preaching, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, falling headlong, burst open in the middle, rather graphic, all his bowels gushed out. It's in the Bible. So it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, 
and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his all. He's quoting the imprecatory psalms. How did he know those? Well, probably because he'd grown up singing them, right? That's from Psalm 69.25 and 109.8, in which the psalmist pleads that God would remove a wicked ruler and replace him with a virtuous one. So maybe, so, so okay, right, that's presence in the New Testament. We'll talk more about that later, I promise. And so we are tempted, I think also when we hear these psalms, to think, okay, so is this personal vendettas? I've got enemies, I hate them, I've got a personal beef with them, and so these psalms are for my personal vendettas, personal gripes. No, actually a lot of these psalms have some pretty high ethics. Uh, what, we, what, what happens in a lot of them is concern for the honor and integrity of God, desire for justice and elimination of injustice. I mean, I'm assuming a lot of you already pray for that. And when I speak of desire for justice and elimination of injustice, perhaps you know why I've selected this Sunday, given what's happened in Nashville, to talk about uh, can we pray these psalms. John Calvin said, It was a holy zeal for the divine glory which impelled the psalmist to summon the wicked to God's judgment seat. Not about a personal vendetta, simply, but a holy zeal for divine glory. Now, again, I know what a lot of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, though. I thought we were supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin, right? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Let's talk about that briefly. That's not in the Bible anywhere. That doesn't mean it's not a good principle, okay? That's a very sound principle to apply to a whole lot of different places in life. However, when you go through the filter of the imprecatory Psalms, it might be better to say, love your enemies as God himself does, okay? Love your enemies as God himself does, all right? And so I, I'm not saying you shouldn't love sinners and then hate the sin. That's, that's right. What we're going to talk more about is, is, well, what exactly does, does love of neighbor and, and love of enemy look like? Because again, these, are parts, these Psalms are parts of God's word. Or how about this one? Uh, there but for the grace of God go I. So when you hear about some sort of evil or wickedness or, or something like that, you, well, well, I'm not in a place to say anything about because because there, there but for the grace of God go I, okay? Now, there's plenty in the New Testament to lead you to talk that way. All I would offer to you is that's not how the apostles always talk, right? You've got Paul insisting that he did things right according to God's commands at one point. Right? Well, that sounds rather haughty. No, no, he's stating truth. Okay? Or how about this? I, I never ask God to be just and to bring judgment because if he did, I'm done for. Right? Okay. All right. That's very pious and indeed very biblical. But I think you're, you're, you're conflating two things. You're, you're saying that, that because... I don't want to be on the blunt receiving end of God's judgment. Therefore, I can't plead for his judgment and justice in the world. That's just, that's not, that's nowhere in the Bible at all. And so we should always be careful, dear saints, and I'm, I won't get too sidetracked by this, but we should also be, always be careful and try to, as best we can, make sure that the scriptures are shaping the way that we talk more than Christian sentimentality. Okay? Sometimes we pick up like little, little sentiments that are, that are nice and that are not entirely wrong, but when they become the, the way that we dictate all of our life and, and the Bible's not, I'm saying get that from the Bible. 
And so that's what I'm trying to do this morning. How can these psalms, difficult as they may be, shape our piety? So the reality of sin, the reality of your sin is a reality. It is certainly true that you have no righteousness before God except that which is given to you by Christ. Yes. But that reality is not meant to mute your tongue when it comes to recognizing evil on the earth and crying out for God's justice. So a lot of these psalms, these imprecations, are actually a longing to see the cause of God established and justice meted out. And if, if again, there's been the temptation sounds rude. Uh, we'll just say perspective. Some, some commentators and pastors and theologians have the perspective that, well, it's not for the new covenant people, just for the old covenant people. Or another view I've heard, like this is only, only Jesus gets to talk this way, right? So these, you can put those Psalms on the lips of Jesus, but they don't belong on your lips. There's arguments. I just don't find that convincing at all. I think it fails to take seriously, again, that imprecations are also found in the New Testament. And it's not just for people of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant gives us promises that continue to be valid for God's people for all time. So let's, let's go back to Psalm 137, shall we? Oop, I'm grabbing my hymnal. Hang on. Psalm 137. So let me give you some of the context, because that's going to be really important for understanding what's going on. You've probably already guessed the context, and that is that... Um, this is a communal lament reflecting on the disaster of the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of Judah, 586 B.C. And you can tell from the language of the psalm that the memory of the destruction seems really fresh, okay? Um, uh, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Memory of destruction. And, and, and lest we forget, the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem was an absolute bloodbath. When Babylonian invaders wanted to break a people, one of the things they would do, and I'm going to try not to be too graphic here for little ears, but basically they went after pregnant women and infants and used rocks. That'll be enough. It was warfare that was meant to break the spirit of a people, break the present generation by cutting down the next one, and that is likely what this author is reflecting on. So you have the structure here. Verses 1 to 4 is, a, is this complaint. Verses 5 to 6 is a self-imprecation. And then verse 7 to 9, imprecation against enemies. We're going to unpack that. So starting with the complaint, verses 1 through 4. How can we sing? How can we sing, right? Uh, the songs of Zion. And by the way, songs of Zion, probably that's a category for what we would call praise songs. Happy songs. Okay? How can we sing our happy songs in the midst of what you did to us and our children? And, and you have you know, these, these mocking calls. Why don't you sing us one of your happy songs? How are we going to do that in this foreign land? And then the self-imprecation starts in verses 5 and 6. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. Okay, so there seems to be a possibility, right? Strong possibility. The author's facing off with here. I don't want to forget Jerusalem. And that makes sense. As the exile generation passed away, a new generation would rise up that knew not Zion and her glories. Zion, after all, is the place where God met with his covenant people. So the psalmist invokes a curse on himself to make sure he doesn't forget. Because, and, and take whatever 
sort of pastoral application you want from this, a long time living in, a, um, in Babylon will make you forget. A long time living in Babylon. And he says, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. Probably what that is, he's probably a singer and a songwriter. He's saying, let my song voice be paralyzed if I forget. Okay? Then we have the imprecation against Babylon, verses 7 through 9. Right? We have against the Edomites and then later the Babylonians. So now notice, this is, these are not the psalmist's personal enemies. He does not say, remember, O Lord, how my next door neighbor Bill stole my lawnmower. Make sure he gets what's coming to him. Right? I mean, I know that sounds silly, but this is not a personal vendetta. These are the enemies, broadly, generally speaking, of God's people. His desire is to see the cause of God established. His ultimate concern that Jerusalem would not be forgotten, that God is glorified in the midst of this hurt and tragedy. He'd rather curse himself than forget God. Yet God's glory also will include the judgment of God's enemies. So verse 7 talks about the Edomites. Who are they? They are descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. They wanted to see Israel destroyed. You, even, you hear that in the next part of the psalm, don't you? Oh, yeah, the next part of the verse, excuse me. Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations, right? Like a mocking battle cry they had. Obadiah 10. Obadiah, a short uh, book, one of the minor prophets, one chapter long, so you don't even need a chapter there. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, Obadiah says to the Edomites, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So, so first thing, remember, remember God, what's happened, and remember me, remember, uh, sorry, first thing is remember Jerusalem, oh my soul, remember Jerusalem. Second thing is, Lord, remember what the Edomites have done, and bring on them the judgment you've already promised to bring, Obadiah 10. Do you see? He's not, he's not saying, Lord, I'm going to start writing this story and telling you how to do what you must do. He's saying, Lord, you've already said shame shall cover them and they will be cut off forever. So let it be so. You've promised it. Let it be so. Same promise shows up in Ezekiel chapter 35, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord writes, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. That's where the Edomites lived. Prophesy against it. Thus says the Lord God, I am against you, Mount Seir. I'll stretch out my hand against you. I will make you a desolation and a waste. There's the promise. I will lay your cities waste. Go to the next one, please. You shall become a desolation and know that I am the Lord. Again, the psalmist is saying in 137, let's see it then. Lord, keep your word. Next comes Babylon, right? Verses 8 and 9. We had a curse against Edom. Verses 8 and 9, we have a curse against Babylon. Uh, sorry, perhaps it's the next one. Did I put that in there? Yeah, there we go. Thanks. Daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Doomed to be destroyed. How does he know that? Because God's already promised to do it. Uh, to show you that, Ezekiel 35. Lots of uh, text to walk through this morning. Uh, Ezekiel 35 is the next one. Do you have that one? Thank you. Uh, good luck keeping up with me. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, sorry. I'm sorry, we've already read that. I'm getting so excited, we've already read that. God had said that Eden would get wiped out, Mount Seir, right? We, why? Why? Because they had had no mercy on Israel, right? Lay it bare, lay it bare. Let's wreck all of Jerusalem. He's asking God to keep his word. Go to Jeremiah 51, 
verses 55 to 56. What we find there is a judgment not against Edom, but against Babylon. For the Lord is laying Babylon waste and still and making her tongue stick to the roof of her mouth. Their waves roar like many waters. The noise of their voice is raised for a destroyer has come upon her, Babylon. Her warriors are taken and so on. God's promised to deal with Israel's enemies. He's saying, Lord, let it be done. And, and you may have noticed then that what this is, is it's hearkening back to the Israelite law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Okay? Okay, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, think back to Psalm 137, because some of you are thinking, okay, I'm, I'm following, but that last verse, man, that last verse, he said, blessed, blessed is the guy who takes your little ones and bashes them against the rocks. Now, the word blessed is used 26 times in the Psalter, never as a call to sadistic joy or, or some kind of evil pleasure. He's not talking about personal revenge. He's asking God to keep His promises. God claimed that the Babylonians would suffer the very suffering they had inflicted. Isaiah 13, can you go there please? Isaiah 13, 15 and 16. Whoever is found will be thrust through. Whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. That's a judgment against Babylon. And then the next chapter, Isaiah 14, 21. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth, and so on. These, again, these, these words of judgment were given against Babylon. So in one sense, all the psalmist is doing in 137 is saying, Lord, do what you've already said is going to happen. And we have to reckon with this God, with this God, who is angry at the wicked every day. Psalm 7. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Or maybe you've heard the story when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's what we remember on Palm Sunday, right? That's over in Matthew chapter 21. So the disciples went as Jesus had directed them. They bring the donkey, put their cloaks. He, he sits on the donkey. Most of the crowd spreads their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road, and so on. And then what did Jesus do a few verses later in the same chapter after the shouts of Hosanna? Go on, please. Verse 12. He entered the temple. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. That's an imprecation. Overturning tables is perfectly consistent with Jesus' holiness and righteousness. I love it when Tim Keller pointed out the only person who gets to rearrange the furniture is the guy who owns the house. Right? Yeah. Okay? You have made my house into a den of, of robbers. And so I told you a minute ago that what we're dealing with here is this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law that was given uh, in a couple of different places in Scripture. One of them is in Leviticus chapter 24. Uh, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. 
animal's life, make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. That's pay it back. Pay back whatever the animal's worth. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am Yahweh your God. The purpose of this law, stay with me. I know I I said a little bit of it was going to feel kind of luxury this morning. But the purpose of this law was to prevent the excess of revenge. Have you ever heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys? Okay. What tends to happen when people are allowed to get revenge on each other is escalation. Okay. My neighbor hits me and blackens my eye. He's about to get two. Right. That's generally how revenge works. Escalation is a hard reality of vigilante justice. So this law, the function of this law was to make sure that a a wrongdoer, a a, a criminal, did not receive a harsher punishment than what he actually deserved. Now, eye for an eye, just so you know, wasn't always enforced literally. That was at a judge's discretion. There are places in the law where it's like if you wound a guy, if you're in a fight with somebody's servant and you hit him in the eye and mess up his eye, you you might receive the same, or you might pay a fine. And the idea is you're, you're, you're paying back what you've taken from that guy in terms of his work. Okay? The money he's now unable to make because you wounded him, you now have to pay back okay? uh, because his work or his ability to work has been affected. But there is one place, I just showed it to you, where eye for an eye was always applied literally, and that's murder. If you intentionally, with a plan, take the life of another human being in, in biblical law, there is no path for you other than execution. And very importantly, it was the judges of Israel who made sure that got carried out. It was not for you to hear, oh, okay, eye for an eye, got it. I'll go take care of that then. No, that was never how the law was instituted in Israel. It was administered by judges, not for personal vengeance. Why does this matter? It is the whole legal foundation, if you like, for Psalm 137. If the Babylonians were so repaid in the same way that they had afflicted and tortured Israel, God's justice and honor would be upheld. Here's what I mean. I think that the people in the Bible in biblical times took more seriously the honor of God than you and I sometimes do. Because we're less familiar with the honor-shame aspect in, in the Scriptures, I think, in so, in so, sometimes. The idea is, is that, I mean, again, Jerusalem, it's not enough to say it got destroyed. It, it got absolutely mutilated. I mean, it was, it was the bloodiest, nastiest time, one of the worst in history in terms of the siege and destruction of Jerusalem, which then caused the other nations to say, Apparently, Yahweh is a chump because he can't keep his people from getting destroyed. Israel understood that if God's justice and honor were to be upheld, something would have to happen to make all the nations go, oh, that's what happens when you mess with their God. Okay? 
And that's, that's a little bit more foreign to us, I think. But this is not a wicked heart thirsty for revenge in the imprecatory Psalms. This is God keep your promises and do justly so the nations know that they should never cross you. Let's go back to verse 9. Because again, if your heart's like mine, you're still going, really though? That language though. Okay, so let's unpack that briefly. I'm going to do the commentator thing and say, yes, that word for infant little ones does have a wide range of meaning, could be babies to mature adolescents. Isn't that woefully unsatisfying to you too? But just so it's out there. That's not what's most important though. What's most important though is that that is a righteous plea for God to fulfill his own word. I already showed you the text from Isaiah. That God would use the hand of Israel to judge God's enemies was a foregone conclusion. And why wouldn't it be? That's how the history of God's people up to this point had always worked. Righteous retribution though is part of God's character. God desires it. And so it is not wrong for us to want him to exercise it. Let me ask you. Do you want to live in a world where evildoers always get away? Do you? Or do you want to live in a world that when when evil men do evil things, it comes back on them? And all of us see it. And all of our neighbors see it. And all of our children see it. And we all go, wow, wickedness doesn't pay. Don't you want to live in a place like that? Don't you want to live in that world? The psalmist did. And they weren't afraid to pray for it and to sing about it. <coughs> Excuse me. So let me get then to, to one of the more difficult kind of difficulties that confronts us with imprecatory psalms, and that's loving our enemies, right? One of the sort of most important activities of a Christian. Isn't this not loving our enemies to pray and think this way? I would say that depends. Is wanting justice to be done part of loving your neighbor? I would submit to you that it is. Let's go to that text, though, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, and so on. Remember the context of Jesus' words, love your enemies, some, some verses earlier, he had said, again, you have heard that it was said eye for an eye and so on, right? So what was going on in Jesus' day was a misuse of that law. Again, people were hearing eye for an eye and saying, okay, that means I get to grab the sword and take out my neighbor who wronged me because eye for an eye. Jewish tradition by Jesus' time even tended to include private vengeance as part of the law. Jesus is saying to his followers not to give place to personal revenge, but to seek to show love to those who sought to harm them. Now, by the way, love your enemies, stated like that, is uh, a, a new way of saying an old thing for Jesus. But it's not a completely foreign concept to the Old Testament. Exodus 23. Listen to this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Oh, If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Now, I'm I'm not a super scholar, but that sounds to me like loving your enemies. Right? That sounds to me like loving your enemies. The concept was already present in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, 
He's really bringing to fulfillment what was already there. The problem was that by Jesus' day, they had taken love your neighbor to mean I have permission to hate my enemy. Right? Jesus called them back to what, it, what he had already said. So when we come to an imprecatory psalm, we have to remember, it's not about personal vengeance. It's not about like a personal crusade. It is a desire to see the Lord's purpose established and divine vengeance against sin and wickedness carried out. For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize this next part. Matthew 11, please. Um, where you hear Jesus' woes against wicked cities in his day. I hate to break it to you, those are basically imprecatory psalms. We just don't call them that because Jesus is the one talking. Okay? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, right? That's, I mean, it, it's liter he's literally calling damnation upon these wicked cities who refuse to believe. So what do we do with that? Well, commands like love your enemy, right? Enemy love is an attitude of readiness to show indiscriminate kindness. But if the enemy's, think of it this way, if the enemy's cup of iniquity has come to full and overflowing, we are, we are perfectly able to call for divine justice. And that's not an absence of enemy love. Jesus utters an imprecation against all of national Israel when they reject him, Luke 19. They rejected him, and he tells them, can we go to the next one? Is it there? Oh, one more, please. One more again. <laughs> there we go. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Days will come when, you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground. Go ahead. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That, that sounds exactly like an imprecatory psalm, and that's Jesus talking. But don't miss the part where Jesus says they and their children, verse 44, will be torn down, tear you down to the ground. You want to know something interesting? In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the same verb in Psalm 137. Okay? Tearing down, breaking upon the rocks, same verb. And some commentators think Jesus is sort of quoting here from Psalm 137 and applying it to, to Israel. Now maybe you're thinking, yeah, okay, maybe, yeah, Jesus did it, but last time I checked, Brian, you're not Jesus and I'm not Jesus and Jesus could do this with a perfect heart. You know what? You're right about that. For what it's worth, though, the apostles did it too. Remember Peter to Simon Magus, may your wealth perish with you. Paul confronts this magician who sought to turn the proconsul against him and Barnabas in Acts 13. He calls him, you son of the devil, you enemy of all that is righteous. Ooh. Galatians, when Paul says, if anyone teaches to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. That's an, that's an, impre that's an imprecation. Or Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. When the martyred souls, when the martyred souls this morning joined by six more from Nashville cried out to God, 
O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And what did the Lord say to them? He said, don't talk that way, you're Christians. No. They were each given a white robe. Next verse. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Sorry, is that one not in there? They were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. They cry out to God to avenge their blood, not for their own personal revenge, but to actualize what was promised elsewhere. This fellow, uh, uh, Simon Kistemacher, a New Testament scholar, he makes the following observation on this text. He says, the saints ask God for justice and petition him to avenge them. He himself has said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people. The promise is solemn and sure, for God never breaks his word. The possessive pronoun our in our blood is telling, for God does not forget the spilled blood of his people and repeatedly utters his warning not to shed innocent blood. Therefore, even though I acknowledge there are those who would take imprecatory psalms and say these are not for us to say, it comes from a good place. I would just say you're not taking into account the way the New Testament talks. From the book that I mentioned to you, Psalms That Curse, Sean McGowan makes the following observation. He says, love for the unbeliever and the psalms of cursing form a strange harmony. They are meant to go together. So then what then? Can we pray these? Can we pray these psalms? Yes, but. <laughs> you should have known that was coming. Yes, but. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. This is one of my favorite moments in the Gospel of Luke. It's kind of hilarious. So the days draw near for him to be taken up. Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He sends messengers ahead of him, ahead of Palm Sunday, uh, and they go and they enter a village of Samaritans. The people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, said it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You gotta love James and John, man. <laughs> they were ready to go. And Jesus says, no. No. <laughs> He turned and rebuked them, all right? Okay, so not all imprecations good. Not all calls for judgment are good. You can kind of taste the personal vengeance in that one, can't you? So, so what do we do with these psalms, and can we pray them? Well, listen, we do, we do, we must, we will continue all the time, every day, twice on Sunday, to pray for our enemies, to pray for the conversion of our enemies and enemies of the gospel. We pray for the conversion of our enemies and the destruction of those who violently oppose the kingdom of Christ. So we don't use these psalms for personal revenge, but we do use them against the evil of our day. Okay? Like what? Human trafficking. Okay? The abortion industry, which grows rich off of spilled blood. We pray the whole thing collapses and oh, our Lord is working on it. Those who want to harm children, those who want to harm children, we pray Psalm 3, Lord, break the teeth in their mouths. You know what that means? It means, imagine a snake with big fangs, and that bit from Psalm 3, break their teeth, is just make them harmless. R reduce their threat to nothing. Right? That, uh, break the teeth sounds like just make them hurt, but it's really more, I mean, it's, it's reduce their threat level to zero. Sean McGowan says again, 
What do we do when we're praying these things? We are praying that their entire production is destroyed, that is the production of wickedness, and that they are held accountable for each and every life they've taken. That has a place in the Christian prayer circle. You know another fitting time for imprecatory psalms? When someone we love dies. Never forget that the Bible does not have friendly terms for death. Death is our enemy. And it's the last enemy to get put under the feet of King Jesus. Some of you might be familiar with the work of a fellow named Douglas Groteis. He's a philosopher and a theologian. He was at Denver Seminary. I'm not sure if he's still there. A few years ago, he lost his wife to dementia. And during his grief, he wrote a book called Walking Through Twilight, A Philosopher's Lament. One of the things that came out of that process for him was some poetry that he wrote that's basically imprecatory poetry spilling out godly anger against dementia, calling dementia an enemy of God and calling on God to put this enemy to death. Now, shouldn't we pray that way? That God would pour out His judgment on enemies like dementia, cancer, chronic pain, death itself. Or how about the persecuted church, right? Many who are under persecution know what it means to pray these psalms. They do. They do. In fact, in times of really gruesome genocide, it's actually a relief to shift your focus away from the desire for retaliation to the one who has the perfect right of vengeance. It's actually a relief. But Brian, I thought we should pray for our persecutors. Yes, you should. Romans 12, 14, right? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Well, okay. What do we do with that? Let's look at the context. Verse 9, what does Paul say? Verse 9, let love be genuine. How do you have genuine love? Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Okay. Verse 18, after verse 14. if, If possible, so far as it depends on you. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Verse 19 then. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Oh, there it is. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you see how Paul brilliantly says, pray for your persecutors, and then still makes room for all those imprecatory psalms at the same time? So live at peace with the confidence that the Lord will hand out justice and the wicked will perish. Your responsibility is to love your persecutor while trusting God for judgment. So this is consistent with all the other other points earlier points. Vengeance is the Lord. We don't take up the sword and say, time to go. Let's let him have it. Yet we still cry out to God for justice. But I'm not saying that the only way to respond to persecution is to call for justice and divine vengeance. Our normative response should be to pray for the conversion of our enemies. What I am arguing for is the recovery of a proper category. It, it, I, want, I want imprecation to have a seat at the table of prayer, not to dominate the whole table because it doesn't dominate the whole Psalter. So let's talk two principles as I wrap this up. Two principles for what's acceptable. Uh, Actually, three. I promise I can count. Three principles for what's acceptable here and then we'll be done. First, what's your motivation? Praying the imprecatory Psalms, what's the motivation? Beware of sin and for using these as a cover for personal vendetta. Good advice, (laughs) especially after Nashville. You mad? I'm mad. So search your heart. 
You got bitterness or ungodly anger in there? Refrain then. Psalm 137 is not for you today. It requires some spiritual maturity and it, different times. Good rule of thumb number two. Go more general rather than specific. There might be times when a specific person might warrant prayers of imprecation like a powerful and influential false teacher. If someone is blatantly setting themselves up against the gospel and gaining a platform to damn thousands or even millions, then there is probably a place for precise imprecation in that direction. Paul did that in his letters on a few different occasions. He named names. But most imprecations in the scriptures have general tone to them. Sometimes it's even hard to tell if an individual is being addressed. Even Psalm 137, right, is directed at Babylon, a nation. Not any particular individual. Evil nations, evil organizations, evil groups that keep on doing things that are opposed to God. So keep things more general in that way when you pray this way. It's a kind of safeguard for your heart. Third principle. Remember the gospel and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save to the uttermost. In other words, can he save that person who you think is worthy of all the retribution and the divine anger now? Yes, he can. Don't forget it. And we need to be called back to the reality, yes, that our sin deserves the heaviest imprecations of judgment. Our sin deserves that. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross on Calvary, He took all of those imprecations of God's judgment for you. Every last one of them on Himself. So we must remind ourselves that some who are caught up today, today, in some of the most wicked practices imaginable, people who hate God and want to see the ruin of His people and His church. Yes, they are ripe for judgment and ripe for imprecation and God's divine vengeance. Some of those are God's very elect children and they will come to faith in Christ in due course. And so we pray that their eyes would be opened to Jesus Christ who stepped off His throne to take their sin on Himself. Again, the goal here, the, the goal of this sermon has been sort of, if you like, to acquaint you with this idea. This is not a call to personal vengeance. I do think this is easier for some Christians to get access to. I mean, if, if you've been through real suffering, real oppression, real grief and hardship, real mistreatment in your life, a lot of what I'm saying this morning is going to make a heck of a lot more sense to you. Okay? If, if you haven't really experienced, I mean, oppression being really wronged and being mistreated, then some of this is going to be a little bit more far off. I, I, I really confess that. But the goal has been to acquaint you with the idea. Not a call to personal vengeance. And if you have difficulty distinguishing between personal vengeance and, and praying God's vengeance and justice, then don't. You're not ready yet. But for many Christians, for many Christians, you'll find that when you look to your father and cry out for his justice to be done, a burden will be lifted from your shoulders because you're not the judge anymore. You're not the one administering the justice. You're not seeking to accomplish it yourself. Rather, you are giving it over to the Almighty God. That is an act of faith. And He says, judgment, uh, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And we His people say, Amen. Indeed, in the name of Jesus, again we say, Amen. Our Father, so we ask for your help in this.
These are hard things, hard sayings in your word. But we want to love all of your word because it is all your word and it reveals Christ to us all the way to the bottom. And so we ask for your help as we learn, continue to learn about psalms like this. And yes, even in due course, perhaps not this morning, but in due course, learn to sing them as well. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.